the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. Our recent shows in Magic Markets Premium have included technology platforms like Spotify, pure plays on American consumers like Winnebago, a recap on FedEx and even Tupperware and its near bankruptcy. For 99 Rand a month or 990 Rand a year, there is simply no better way to learn about the world of investing. Visit magic-markets.com for more. Welcome to episode 121 of Magic Markets. I'm sitting here having just had the calorie binge of my life at Woolworths. I'm not even sure what happened really. Load shedding, Mo, something you don't have to deal with anymore. Um, although you're doing lots of binge eating at the moment in Ramadan, but I think it was a little bit in sympathy maybe. I think I just ate about 50,000 kilojoules at Woolworths. So I'll be going back to my old habits of a quick kawaii wrap with portion control. Feeling quite sorry for myself here. But uh, no such problems for you with load shedding and calorie binges while the lights are off huh yeah ghost i think your your calorie intake there is to offset the fact that i am not eating during ramadan i mean you've probably eaten this evening the same extent that i've consumed over the last week so uh i wish you all the best i know now maybe i need to go long like maybe peloton stock or something like that because you're gonna have to burn all those calories off just go direct with lon woolwoods that's clearly <laughs> where my money went tonight but uh, it is what it is so we do not have a guest this week it's me and you getting to hang out which is something we get to do more or less once a month sometimes a little bit less and it's quite fun because we get to just chat through whatever's been top of mind for us sometimes it's stuff that comes out of our work in magic markets premium sometimes it's just things we've looked at in our own portfolios or in our own you know just following the markets really and i think we've got some interesting stuff that we are going to try and get through tonight yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ghost, there's so much that we unpack in Magic Markets Premium. And because of the flavor between Magic Markets Premium and a lot of the content that we cover here on our free show tends to differ quite a bit. I think these conversations between you and I are quite important because it helps us unpack some of those concepts, bring them out here outside of, let's call it outside of the paywall to give people who aren't subscribers just a line of sight in terms of some of the macro themes that come through and then how we tend to apply those to stock specific analysis. So in fact, I'm going to jump right in here, Ghost, because I think something we've seen certainly on the stock that we've kind of covered this week, which is Tupperware, which has been all over the kind of press and the media, you know, pretty much a business that looks as though it's, it's heading uh, down down the tubes, was the concept around share buybacks. Because this was, interestingly enough, even something that featured on a stock like Tupperware, but it features in a whole host of stocks that we've covered over the course of the last year and a half that we've been doing this at Magic Markets Premium. And sometimes share buybacks are something good and sometimes there's something bad. Let me unpack that. You know, in the US, first of all, it's generally the preferred measure to return capital to shareholders, largely because of taxation. You know, dividends are taxable, whereas, you know, share buybacks allows you to return some of that money to your investors without that tax hit necessarily coming through. So I think there is some merit to it. But generally, the execution of this has been all over the show. When we look at corporate America, you know, sometimes they've done really well. You've got a great management team. Other times it's done tremendously badly. And so maybe, Ghost, you can give us some examples that have stuck out for you in terms of, you know, what were the highlights and the lowlights in terms of where the share buybacks have, were a good allocation of capital and where they were a terrible allocation of capital. And then we can maybe unpack that a little bit further to say, should management teams be playing, let's call it asset managers, versus really just reinvesting that money in the business. What's your view on that? So share buybacks are used really, really poorly in the US market based on what we've seen. I mean, the textbook explanation for a share buyback is that you should actually be doing buybacks when your stock is cheap, 
not just all the time and not just every quarter because it's what you've always done. What you should be doing as a management team is looking at this and saying, okay, our stock is currently undervalued in our opinion. So we think a good use of capital is to actually invest in ourselves, buy back some of our stock. And what, what happens in practice is these are just orders through the market. Literally, as a shareholder, you don't even realize it's happening to you. You are selling your shares in the market and the buyer turns out to be the company you hold the shares in. And they either buy it in the holding company, the listed company and cancel those shares or they buy it in a subsidiary and keep it as treasury shares. Either way, a company can't own shares in itself, pay dividends to itself, et cetera, et cetera. So what ends up happening is those who have not sold their shares are effectively ending up with a bigger stake in the company because of the buybacks for those who sold. In theory, that works well if the shares are cheap. However, if you are buying back the shares when they are expensive, it's a bad idea because why would you invest in your own stock when the shares are overpriced? Now, the problem is it's become such a cultural thing that the moment a management team turns around and says, no, we're not going to do a share buyback, the market will interpret that as, oh, look, the shares are too expensive and the share price will tank. So what management teams end up doing is they use it as a tool to try and just keep that share price bubbling over, which is actually a really bad use of capital at the end of the day. And the other big trick is in tech companies, especially in tech companies where share-based compensation is through the roof. What ends up happening is the company then does share buybacks to try and make up for the fact that they are issuing a whole ton of new shares to their staff, which is diluting shareholders all the time. And the reason they issue those new shares to staff is because you are then effectively paying your staff without taking the cash flow hit. So you can then adjust for it in your adjusted EBITDA as we see all the time. So basically what companies do is they are paying their staff. They are paying them with stock and they are then adjusting for it and saying, oh, look, we made a profit. We generated free cash flow. But if you take stock-based compensation out, no, they didn't. And the only reason they can then actually avoid dilution of their shareholders is by buying back stock. So it's just this double, triple, quadruple whammy. It doesn't work. It really doesn't. Although, Mo, as we saw this week, Tupperware, probably one of the worst examples we've seen, huh? Undoubtedly. I mean, this is a company that's now saying they're, they're headed for bankruptcy, right? But had executed on a, a, a fairly large share repurchase, you know, at the start of last year. So, you know, it's just a poor allocation of capital. I mean, I want to, before we even drop this point, Ghost, I want to highlight two things because you've mentioned the stock-based compensation and how that flatters the cash flow position of a company. I mean, it's something we've covered a lot, but maybe a step further is, does the share repurchase programs that corporate America, by and large, execute on, does that not artificially deflate the overall dividend yield? Because you have an option to return capital to shareholders. You can either return it as a dividend and that's taxable in the hand of the investor, or you can return it in terms of share buybacks. And does that not mean that when we're doing comparatives, long-term comparatives in terms of where dividend yields have been, and again, we've unpacked how, for example, the dividends aristocrats index uh, is a bit of a misnomer, but does that not change structurally how you need to contextualize current metrics versus historic metrics when looking at something like a dividend yield. Yeah, I mean, they should definitely just be paying the cash dividend, right? When the shares are expensive, when they're cheap, go do the buybacks. When they're expensive, pay out the cash dividend, end of story. Or if you have a better use for the capital inside the company that can generate economic profits, then you know reinvest it. So absolutely, it has a significant impact on dividend yield. It kind of does artificially reduce those yields. And to your point on dividend aristocrats, all that's happening there is the companies are looking at this and saying, well, you know, to maintain that status, we need to pay and grow our dividend all the time. So what they do is they have an artificially low payout ratio because if you're paying out a relatively small dividend, it's so much easier to maintain that dividend. 
So if you go onto any one of these data systems, like we use Ticker on Magic Markets Premium, you go and draw the dividends and then you also draw the share repurchases from the cash flow statement. You will very quickly see that the dividends will nine times out of 10 be this very steady story and the repurchases will be all over the place based on the profitability of the company. And that is exactly the wrong way to do it. Repurchases should be based on the share price, alternative uses of capital, not there as a buffer to try and support this artificially low dividend without upsetting shareholders. So speaking of capital misallocation, Mo, we actually had Alexander Weiss from Tribe South Africa on last week and we talked about banks and we talked about Silicon Valley Bank and we talked about how that thing just fell over and how they allocated capital very poorly into their fixed income investments, their risk management was off. The banks have now started reporting results and from what I've seen, the big banks are doing rather well and the regionals are struggling. You know, what is happening on the ground on that side that is driving this divergence in performance? Yeah, so I mean, yes, we had Alexander Weiss. He gave us a nice background in terms of what happened around Silicon Valley Bank. We also discussed how you look at banks, you know, relative valuations. We brought that discussion back into the South African banks and the South African market. So for those of you that may have missed last week's show, go and check it out. It's episode 120, uh, just talking about banks. I'm going to use this as an opportunity because I don't think we got the opportunity to unpack that last week to just map what the U.S. banking environment looks like. Now, why do I say this is that you know, we're talking about a divergence between regional banks and the big banks, let's call it the national banks, but I don't think a lot of people understand what is a regional bank in the United States. And you can almost break down the banking sector in the U.S. into three parts. One would be a community bank, and that's something really quite small. Uh, tends to be kind of locally based, funds local businesses, does not operate beyond the community within which it is based. That's a community bank. And generally, the rule of thumb there is that any bank with assets less than $10 billion would be considered a community bank. Then we move up a tier, and that's the regional banks. And that's where we've seen a lot of pressure come through. Silicon Valley Bank, for example, would be deemed a regional bank. And these are typically mid-sized. They tend to focus on a specific region or geographical area or a specific sector for that matter. And generally, rule of thumb there, assets between $10 billion up to $100 billion. And then beyond that, you've got the big national banks. And here we're talking the possibly too big to fail, the JP Morgans, the cities and so forth. And I guess the key differentiator across these three segments is that small bank, Think mom and pop shop, risk analysis there, very much based on, hey, I know you're standing in the community. I know you're a farmer in this particular community. Uh, if you have a bad crop, I've assessed you based on the merit of your character. Think really old school banking. That's what a community bank looks like. Regional banks, a little bit of a hybrid. You know, they operate in sophisticated financial markets. It does tend to be a lot more kind of orientated, similar to the national banks around credit risk models. It's a little more impersonal than, I guess, the community banks, but slightly more personal than the national bank. So that's what some of the distinctions look like. Now, for context again, Ghost, I think this is so important. There are over 4,700 banks in the United States. That's the number. And if you kind of stratify the market, your average size of your top 250 is around $83 billion worth of assets. So that gives you a sense of how diverse the market is. And at the top end, you've got the likes of a JP Morgan, over $3 trillion worth of assets. Uh, the top 10, incidentally, just to show you how the dispersion, even the top 10, the top 10 rounds out at around $386 billion. So from number one to number 10, there's actually a 10x kind of difference just in terms of the size of these banks. And last point I just, from a contextual perspective, want to raise is that banks were only allowed to 
operate across state lines in the US from 1994 onwards. Prior to that, you had to operate in the state where you operated in. So even if you were, you know, the concept of a national bank did not exist before 1994. And after 1994, obviously the big banks went and they merged a whole bunch of these smaller banks and the number fell from something like 10,000 banks to around the 4,000 odd number that I just gave you now. So that's the context, the history. What's happening on the ground right now? Well, first of all, we had SVB. I'm not gonna go into that, bad risk management, but banking is based on trust. That's something we covered last week. And the failure of, I guess, SVB, arguably regional banks, or the difficulties they're facing is that as we stand today, these banks are facing a withdrawal of deposits. Why is that? Well, you know, the regulators stepped in. They said, look, it doesn't matter how big you are. You've got deposit insurance. We're going to stand in for that deposit insurance to make sure that this isn't a banking contagion. But that hasn't quite addressed the matter. People are saying, well, actually, maybe we need to take our money and put them into these banks that are already too big to fail, the national banks. And that's why you're seeing the funds flow out of the smaller regional banks into the larger national banks. Now, let's look at stock performance. You know, you can look at this on a very macro level. You could look at, for example, an ETF. And then if you look at a regional ETF or regional banking ETF, KRE, for example, that's the code. That is kind of flat over the course of the last year. So, so, so if we look at KRE, for example, you know, over the last year, that is a, a, an ETF that focuses on regional banks, that's down around 36%. But over the last month, it's only down around 5%. So you've seen you know, some bounce come through after SVB was rescued and so forth. But how does that compare to the larger banks? Well, if you look at the larger banks, you know, they've done pretty well. Let's use JP Morgan here as, as an example. Over the last year, it's up 12%, but most of that's actually come over the last month. About nine nine 9.5% of that's come over the last month. And that's showing you this divergence in the share price performance. A lot of that related to the fact that these larger banks are the beneficiaries of the cheap deposits. They are going to be secure. The smaller banks are going to continue coming up against some headwinds. And remember, at the end of the day, we've spoken about trust in banking. But regional banks, because they're focused on either a specific region or a specific sector, just by definition, do not have sufficient diversification. Some of them are heavily exposed to, for example, agriculture. Some of them are heavily exposed, and we'll touch on this point, to commercial real estate. And that's the next risk flag. You're gonna start seeing headlines about this because commercial real estate loans are all set to be resetting over the course of the next year to two years. And they would argue that some of these regional banks, even though the scale of the commercial real estate exposure is rather small, just given the nature of banks and how heavily leveraged their balance sheets tend to be, could be enough to wipe out the equity tier of some of the weaker banks. So keep an eye out for that. I think those are some of the risks on the kind of in the background that people are trying to contextualize and why we're maybe seeing this divergence emerge between smaller regional banks and the larger national banks that quite frankly have diversification, access to global capital markets, and are deemed too big to fail, not just on a national US level, but on a global level. And Mo, they also face competition from funny places, don't they? Because Apple has been in the news with financial services products. And from what I've seen, I haven't digged in in detail. I must be honest, it's too far away from me. I can't invest in it from here. But it seems like they're offering better rates than a lot of the banks on this, you know. And I think it's a good example of optionality in a business, right? Apple is a platform. And at the end of the day, a platform, once it has a big user base, can do all kinds of cool and interesting things. Mercado Libre is another really good example. We've covered it in Magic Markets Premium. It makes me irritated at how simple Take-A-Lot is in South Africa, because if you look at what Mercado Libre is doing, it feels like Take-A-Lot's completely asleep at the wheel here. With Amazon coming into South Africa, they just haven't done 
enough, despite being part of NASPAS and having access to all the capital in the world. But I guess the point here, and, and perhaps the learning for me from this, this Apple news is, this is why we look for optionality in a story, isn't it? This is why we, we try and imagine what this company might be able to achieve going forward with the platform that has already been built. Yeah, I think that's an important point. So maybe let's rewind a little bit. Just again, in terms of Apple, you know, entering into the financial services space by offering depositors effectively a 4% return. Now, if you go and scratch a little bit, you'll see that's for generally larger deposit sizes. It's generally fixed deposit type stuff out to term. So, I mean, if you look at that headline number, it looks very attractive versus the 0.1, 0.2% you're going to be earning on like a checking account up here in North America. But it does look attractive but it is specifically for fixed deposit type stuff and certainly out to term. Now, what's interesting for me here is that it's in partnership with Goldman Sachs and Goldman Sachs, and it's also tied to the fact that you've got to have an Apple card and so forth. So it's not as simple as, hey, give us your money. There is some cross-sell opportunity and I'm sure it makes business sense on that side. But interestingly enough, Goldman Sachs has been struggling with its kind of commercial arm for some time. And Apple, or this collaboration with Apple, is actually offering a more attractive deposit than Goldman Sachs' deposit arm in terms of, of, the, of their smaller retail operations. So that's interesting because it shows how you can get this partnership between a tech giant. And I can almost see this playing out, is that Apple has the distribution. You have Apple, you have your device. Goldman Sachs has the financial know-how. And you put these two together in a completely different space. I mean, I remember years ago when, you know, the concept of mobile money or M-Pesa, for example, down in South Africa, which, which I know is something that's taken off across the rest of the African continent, you know, that concept was something foreign. I was still in retail banking at the time, and I remember having this conceptual discussion saying, you know, are mobile companies the next banks? And is Apple not just taking that to the nth degree because they own the customer, they own the device, they own the ecosystem. So it's saying, why don't we actually start operating in that space? I digress. You asked a specific question around optionality. And optionality, again, for maybe our, our listeners that aren't familiar with it, is that it's generally an asymmetric payoff profile. You know, you've got limited downside, you've got kind of exponential upside. That's where optionality comes into it, is that you get the option to do something and sometimes to earn disproportionately sized returns relative to the amount of risk that you take. Now, when we look at businesses, you've got businesses like Apple that incubate interesting sub-businesses. You've got the same thing, for example, in, in Google or Alphabet. I know maybe not necessarily a favorite of yours more recently, Ghost, but you know Google or Alphabet have been known to incubate smaller businesses within the overarching kind of big business, and they seed that. They're almost acting as these VC incubators on a scale, and it gets hidden in the larger conglomerate. But longer term, as long as it makes strategic sense for the wider group, and again, Apple might be a good example, their potential foray into health wearables, you know, with, for example, uh, glucose monitoring devices, that is all optionality that, if it pans out, could unlock a substantial gain to some of these companies and open up entirely new markets. And if they don't work out, well then, that's the optionality component, is that they tend to get swallowed within the larger cash generative business. And that's, I guess, what we've seen with a lot of, certainly in the tech sector, but with a lot of the larger US corporations doing more recently. Just on Google, you know, been within Microsoft, no one was caring about that in the slightest. No one was talking about Microsoft as a serious player in search. People are starting to talk about that now. People are starting to talk about disruption to Google from artificial intelligence and other sources. So, you know, search was a good example of optionality inside Microsoft because no one was talking about it. You were buying Microsoft shares, but you were not really getting any kind of exposure to search as it is. And the opposite of optionality, I suppose, is pure play. 
and that's where a business like Winnebago was so interesting to actually go and cover is because it gives you a very, very specific view on something, whatever that something is. Tupperware is another good example. They just broke the business, whereas Winnebago has got a proper management team in it. And that business, you know, it conjures up images of watching movies that have, you know, take your pick from one of Vince Vaughn, Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson, Will Ferrell, any one of these. You can imagine them road tripping across America doing some kind of ridiculous thing. And it's that, it's that part of American culture, that road trip culture. That is exactly what Winnebago does with those recreational vehicles of all shapes and sizes. And what I found interesting when we covered that business is how it actually gives you a very, very cool way of playing the U.S. consumer ultimately because that is exactly what you are tapping into there they don't have operations all over the world it doesn't come with all these big complexities it's a very pure view on u.s consumers and therefore it is also very very cyclical so in terms of your own portfolio Ma, i was just curious you know how do you think about including some of these cyclicals do you try and just buy them at the bottom of a cycle and then forget them do you actively manage them do you just ignore them I mean, Ghost, it's an excellent question because that's almost a, a much more macro question. I think when you're looking at sector allocation, if you're looking, for example, cyclicals or cyclicals, whatever you want to call it, versus consumer staples or more defensive stocks, that becomes an asset allocation decision rather than a, a specific stock decision. And then below that asset allocation decision, obviously, you can say, well, within, let's say I'm deciding to go with cyclicals, what are the best quality stocks I can buy in that space? Or do I go and buy an ETF to give me broad sectoral exposure and thereafter, you know, go and pick and choose? Now, it's actually a very nuanced question. I'm gonna try and unpack it in several layers. The first one is that from an asset allocation perspective, I've got a model effectively, I mean, this is, this is something you can go and Google out there where you compare which sectors you can be invested in versus where we are in an economic cycle. So it tends to overlay the business cycle versus the market cycle. Now, generally, if you're, for example, in a late bear market, or maybe let's call it early recession before you go into a full recession, that's ironically the time you want to start looking at cyclical stocks because you want to try and bottom pick these things. And then as the cycle turns, as the business cycle turns, it starts to filter through in terms of just general market performance. And you move from effectively a market bottom into, a, I guess, another bull phase. That's just conceptually on a macro level, how you contextualize it. Now, cyclicals are obviously the opposite of for example, staples or utilities that are very defensive. Now, why I say it's very nuanced is if you go and have a look at just the broader sectors over the course of this last year, over the course of the last six months even, it hasn't been all smooth sailing. If you go and have a look at cyclicals, some cyclicals have done very, very poorly and other cyclicals have done rather well. And the reason for this goes back to your previous point. You know, we were talking about some of these tech stocks, for example, they, they tend to be slightly more cyclical, but they also incubate a whole host of other types of businesses. So pure play is very difficult, whereas you're getting a conglomerate effect, whether a stock sits in, for example, infotech or consumer services is a subtle nuance and you might not be seeing the stock in the sector that it arguably belongs in, in terms of your own macro framework. So keep that in the back of your mind first and foremost. The second thing is that if we then have a look at cyclicals specifically, that's a very big sector. So do you look at autos, for example? Well, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in autos. We've covered, for example, the likes of Ford. We've covered Tesla, but there are different push and pull factors and that's in that specific sector. There's EVs and what's happening with EVs. So keep that in, in the back of your mind. There's a lot of other moving parts, but then there's stuff like construction. Well, how does construction do if you have housing shortages in the US and rising interest rates. You know, are you bullish on construction or are you bearish on construction in that kind of context? What about, for example, semiconductors? Semiconductors are actually cyclical and semiconductors have been 
you know, subject to the whims of geopolitical risks. Then you've got airlines. We've covered airlines. We've covered, for example, I think it was Delta. We covered Delta a while ago, if memory serves. We've also covered, incidentally, FedEx. And FedEx is technically an airline slash logistics business. Again, go and check out the FedEx show more recently. To, to our listeners and our subscribers who may have missed that, go and check out the FedEx show. Very interesting as a look through to the real economy. Hotels have done really well. That's a cyclical sector. So all I'm saying is, even within kind of a broader cyclical view, there are so many. The U.S. market is so big, so deep. We've covered hotels. We've covered Hyatt Group a long time ago. And it all depends on which part of the value chain you feel would be most defensive, what stocks are looking as though they're out of kilter with their own long-run kind of business model or just maybe mean reversion if that's your kind of strategy. And so you've got to look at it in terms of cyclical stocks, break it down to individual stocks or sectors, and then just really be patient in terms of choosing your entry and exit points, even if you get the macro cycle right. I mean, Ghost, this is maybe will lead into another question that I like to pose to you, and that's luxury goods. Because, you know, this is something we've had some requests from subscribers. It's on the list. We've been requested to cover LVMH, for example, or Hermes. And I know why. I mean, if you go and have a look at any of these luxury goods stocks, I mean, I, I remember Richemont, you know, for South, South African listeners and subscribers, I remember Richemont bumbling along forever in like 100 to 114 Rand range for the longest time. And then boom, a pandemic comes along and the thing completely rockets, but they're not alone. You know, you, you, if you map that against an LVMH or Hermes or any of the global luxury groups, luxury has just exploded. Now, historically, you could make an argument to say, well, luxury is actually cyclical. When the economy is good, people buy nice watches, they buy jewelry, but something's changed. Something's broken and it's broken over the course of the last, let's call it two years. If you look at the share, it's broken in a good way if you're long, if you're a shareholder. What is your view, Ghost, on luxury? Because, you know, we've had big numbers out of LVMH. We've covered a stock like, for example, Ferrari on Magic Markets Premium as well. Luxury goods almost seem as though they're on a planet of their own. And that's been the moonshot. Maybe unpack your view on luxury goods for us, Ghost. Yeah, lux luxury is firmly in vogue, if you'll excuse that, uh, that reference. And I think... Personally, I think it's because investors are seeing it as a bit of a safe haven, to be honest. I think at the end of the day, this, the type of person who can afford a brand new Ferrari, and I mean a brand new Ferrari, a 10 million Rand plus product, people forget what these things cost new. They are really not overly bothered by, you know, annoyances like load shedding and fuel costs and food inflation. These are, these are not on their list of 99 problems. So it becomes this very defensive stock. Same story, very high-end handbags, timepieces, jewelry, all this kind of stuff. And of course, just making expensive things is no guarantee of success. So Fabergé within Gemfields is still a loss-making business. You know, it's not a guarantee that you'll do well. But certainly among the world's leading luxury brands, there does seem to be this incredible uplift in the traded multiples. Investors are willing to pay massive valuations for these businesses. And of course that creates risk. You know, for anyone who has a bit of a value investment tilt, they look at this and they go, hmm, that looks very expensive. You know, can it carry on like this realistically? For anyone who's a growth investor, they look at it and say, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, this is clearly a fast growing industry, blah, blah, blah. I think also emerging markets coming into it have played a role. You know, it's not just the developed markets now where you have consumers who can afford this stuff. I mean, China is an absolute monster of a market. The fact that they were kind of out of it during COVID and now coming back into it has been a huge driver of recent share price performance for a bunch of these luxury goods companies. And interestingly enough, I was looking at an Anglo announcement the other day. They obviously released the De Beers sales cycle results. 
And there was a bit of a throwaway comment in there about how demand from China is coming through. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting look through for something like Richemont. Before I could even do anything with that information, LVMH had already reported and amazing numbers. And by then, you know, you didn't have to go and read a sense about the beers to know what was going on. So it's just interesting to see how China is obviously playing such a huge role in this. And again, I just think it's investors looking for safety and some yield at least. And these luxury goods companies are really, really coming to fashion. But again, when stuff is hyped up, etc., that is when it can hurt you. So investors always have to be careful buying the flavor of the day is a very good way over time to lose money. Yeah, it certainly gets me worried because, you know, like you say, the stuff that gets the headlines, that's that's maybe the flavor of the day and then you want you don't want to lose money. And I, I just saw, I think LVMH is now on like the top 10 largest companies in the world. I saw a headline like just before going on to this record. So I haven't validated that. But I mean, that that's headline grabbing stuff. And maybe a flag of caution. It's, it's almost why I've been hesitant for us to look at the luxury sector in Magic Markets Premium because it's almost as though you're going to look at this and come through saying, what's more expensive? You know, that Birkin handbag or buying Hermes stock, for example. You know, it's, 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 it's phenomenal. But also, I guess at the end of the day, the rich get richer. I mean, you just reminded me that a Ferrari now costs 10 million rands in South Africa. I remember when those were going at around 4 million rands. And that's purely the product of where the exchange rate has gone over the course of the last several years. But notwithstanding that, remarkably, there are still people buying Ferraris and Bentleys and Rolls Royces, even in emerging markets like South Africa. So I think you might not have electricity, you might have a lot of solar, but emerging markets, definitely some of that growth story coming in. Ghost, I'm going to say we absolutely have to cover luxury goods. One of them, we've got several uh, we've got several requests in for those. LVMH, Hermes, maybe we do a themed Magic Markets premium report, but I'm going to put that out there to say, I think we should cover that. But unfortunately, I think that's all we have time for this week. So to our listeners who aren't in Magic Markets premium, we, we hope you've enjoyed some of the flavor of the themes that we put on the table here. A lot of this comes out of very detailed, bottoms up, fundamental analysis on stocks across a whole host of sectors in the US. It's always global stocks, but at 99 Rand a month, we think that is the best investment you're going to be able to make in terms of your own financial education. So we hope you've enjoyed this show. And for more detail, go and check out our website. It's magic-markets.com or follow us on social media if you're not already. It's at magicmarketspod, one word. Until next week, same time, same place. Thanks and cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.